Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey there, Solar Warriors. Welcome back to another Tactical Tuesday. These are conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast. I like to say that if Thursdays are for our thoughtful insights into the who of the industry, then these are the what, when, how, where, and why, the tools of the trade, as it were. Sometimes, as in today, we bring you live content from one of our many live broadcasts and trainings. I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago to join our friends at Midwest Solar Expo and many of you who traveled to Chicago, where I was able on one of the lunch sessions to host a fireside chat with today's guests. We kick things off with Priscilla Liu, followed by Zad Ashai. Priscilla is the managing director of Deutsche Bank's DWS Asset Management Sustainable Investments Group. As many of you know, DWS is their asset side, not the banking side, and they help manage funds for mega corporations like VW and Apple. And Priscilla has a storied career. She really does. We get a chance to really dig in on the opportunities she sees for financing renewable energy projects in the U.S., especially with the tailwind of the IRA, but from the perspective of someone whose job is to help major corporations think through their focus on ESG, the way that they deploy capital, and why now is the best time in recent memory to deploy capital into renewables as a component of their ESG efforts. Priscilla also gives a glimpse into how someone at the highest levels in the financial markets is seeing the opportunity with regards to technological advantage, things like blockchain and how they could be applied to renewable rollout. We follow the conversation with Priscilla with Another industry luminary, Mr. Zad Ashai, the CEO of Nexamp, a company that many of you are familiar with and one of the leaders in the community solar segment. Zad has a rally cry that it is time for solar experts to get off the sidelines. Apart from the wins from the IRA, we can't afford complacency in the fight against the fossil fuels and the incumbents. The PR battle we see developing as a headwind is one that we have to take head on. And you really are going to enjoy Zad's perspective from that of the driver's seat of one of the largest owners and operators of community solar assets in the U.S. about specifically what we've learned in other markets, NIM 3.0, main legislation, specific nuances from the Midwest markets, and how we face an opportunity that is uniquely ours to create the utility of the 21st century. What will it look like? How do we expand upon the existing IPP model as solar becomes the most dominant form of generation in the United States and around the globe? 
These and other questions are answered by today's guests, and I want to invite you to remember to subscribe to the show if you haven't already, especially if you're looking for the latest insights on how the industry is growing and the leaders who are growing it. You can find all that right here on Suncast. I hope that you'll subscribe and share the show. But for now, let's get down to business and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with another practical, tactical conversation here on Suncast. So today we're actually recording a live episode of Suncast, and I have the distinct opportunity to interview two folks who have a lot to say about what's happening in the financial markets and what's happening as solar developers. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you know, distributed energy, if you read the blurb about what we were doing today for lunch, is uh, considered the new normal. Uh, What we're seeing at the corporate level is metrics driven by this new term, ESG. Raise your hand if you've heard ESG. Yep, ESG. Trust me, if you haven't, you're going to hear a whole lot more about it. We're going to hear not only about the scope one, Emissions, which is what a company does for themselves, how they actually reduce their own greenhouse gas emissions. But scope two and scope three are increasingly driving the narrative around why corporate is looking at investing in sustainable alternative assets. And today we're going to check the pulse of those corporates and the financial markets through the lens of an expert who works daily with global Fortune 50 companies and in reducing their carbon footprint. We're also going to connect with the CEO of one of the country's largest development organizations doing solar and storage across the United States. Joining me on stage today is Dr. Priscilla Liu. She serves as head of sustainable investments at DWS Asset Management, where she helps the world's largest corporations lower their carbon footprint and understand and manage their ESG metrics. She's got more than three decades of international industry experience in telecommunications and clean tech and has led early efforts in technology innovation at cellular networking space back in the 90s. Prior to her successful entrepreneurial career, she spent more than 15 years at Bell Labs, where she pioneered microprocessors, developed packet switching systems, and had an altogether impressive career. She was poached from her previous role by DWS in 2014 to work on sustainable investment for Asia and China after having raised a 400 million fund in healthcare and cleantech. The list continues pretty long after that, but I'm going to just stop there and say thank you, Priscilla, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. To set the stage here, what's important for folks to really understand is that while we often operate at a local level, there are a lot of macroeconomic factors that influence the regulations that come down on, uh, on a specific market. So could you talk a bit about Deutsche Bank's asset management group, DSW, how it specifically helps clients mitigate pollution and transition away from fossil fuels and supply chain and operation efforts? First, I want to say that I'm delighted to be back in the Midwest, which is where I got my edu- graduate education and also undergrad. And it's, it's really uh, very exciting to see so much uh, interest in the space now, really taking momentum. And I think that this um, pace of adoption and, and interest in renewable energy is really accelerating, uh, especially in the U.S., and uh, globally, there has been quite a bit of activities in investment in renewable energy. And uh, much of that effort initially has been uh, really started in Europe. And then, of course, uh, China has taken a very strong investment in renewable energy and has really driven the development of both solar and wind uh, projects. And much of that is today Deutsche Bank, DWS client or interest level is very much driven from the focus to decarbonize. 
And this is primarily to look at decarbonizing the portfolio of pension funds as well as insurance companies, as well as decarbonizing for the corporates. And as you indicated, as defined by CDP, there's scope two and scope three. Scope one is more addressable because it's directly related to the consumption and directly related to the corporate's use of the energy. And many times people put solar on the rooftop or try to basically in the U.S. be able to do uh, PPMs, power purchase agreement, and then be able to address uh, the green energy that they would actually use and source it from uh, solar and wind farms. But more challenging is really scope two and scope three. And that is really looking at supply chain and also where they have their footprint outside of the direct access. And in many cases, these are in the developing countries. If you look at the bulk of the manufacturing, if you look at manufacturing of especially equipment, products, and, and, and so on, they are primarily in Asia. And uh, Asia represents more than 50% of the manufacturing production of the world. And as a result, much of that scope two and scope three is actually in Asia. And it has been the case that's dominated in China. And of course, now very much uh, growing is, is also growing in India and other places like Vietnam, Thailand, and so on. And so what does that mean? It means that the suppliers that are actually providing the parts or doing the manufacturing production, as well as the retail stores that these large corporates have, in those countries create a carbon footprint. They're using energy, which is primarily coal, and therefore creating the carbon footprint that they have to address to decarbonize. So that's where the opportunity lies in terms of directing and channeling the investment that the corporates are looking to do to to help reduce their carbon footprint, and then helping to support the development and expansion of renewable energy. And that opportunity, of course, also exists in the U.S. So most of your corporate clients have headquarters here, but they have headquarters in Europe. They have operations around the world. The operations around the world piece, the scope two, scope three, is by and large being driven by Wall Street, taking ESG seriously as a metric and policies, in many cases, much more stringent policies in Europe than the United States that are driving corporates to take action. Could you speak a bit to the policies outside of the United States that are forcing companies like Apple and VW to take massive uh, and and consequential action? So government and policies do make a difference. Not only are they there to enable permits to be available for renewable energy development, but one of the things that uh, Europe has done is really the requirement for sustainable financial disclosure regulatory requirements by both fund managers as well as corporates. What that means is that they have to report on the carbon footprint of their investment or in the case of corporates, the carbon footprint of their products and services and the businesses that they have. And so that requirement for disclosure really allows for the government to have access or transparency on the impact that those activities have with respect to climate change. So in particular, there is what is called CBAM, which is cross-border access mechanism, which is a cross-border tax that is going in place in October of this year. The tax is not going to go in immediately, but the requirement for disclosure for any product that has contents of steel, aluminum, fertilizer, which is interesting, iron, uh, as well as energy-related products. And so these key areas 
really drive the need for all products to disclose their product footprint that has these content in it. So that disclosure, starting with the disclosure, would allow for the government to have access to information that eventually a tax, a carbon tax, will be incurred. Now, this is not necessarily something that U.S. is doing, but because this is happening in the EU, anybody importing anything that has those content in it would have to disclose the carbon footprint, which means that any manufacturing production would have to try and reduce the carbon content or carbon footprint in order to be able to reduce the amount of eventual taxation that would be incurring. What's interesting is that while we don't have active uh, carbon tax legislation that we are presently, like, I mean, there are places where it's being considered in the United States, but we're not paying a carbon tax at the moment the way that you have to in Europe and certain places. What we have seen, those of us that have been around long enough in the U.S. market, is that we do often learn from and adopt European policies. Uh, I mean, everything that we're doing right now with regards to virtual power plants is, uh, in, in large part, been incubated by companies like Sonnen in Germany a decade back, right? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on or what you're hearing from your clients around how specifically these global policies are impacting the local development economy here in the United States. So the folks that are mostly here developing solar and energy storage for U.S. markets, what does it mean to them that the global economy is requiring these types of uh, stringent reporting So the requirement now by many of these large corporates is that they must require their suppliers to disclose the amount of energy consumption that is associated with fossil fuel. Now, that requirement is across the board for all suppliers. So they didn't say, well, anything outside of U.S., you have to disclose. It's all suppliers. So if you are a supplier in the U.S., you will have to do that as well. And they are asking that because they have that obligation to report if they are to import anything into Europe, which of course Europe is a huge market, and they would have to require that eventually to provide that data and information. And so given that, it's very much the case that now at a corporate level, there is the the need to be able to have that information available for all of the, not only manufacturing company, but also service-related companies, including companies that have fast food stores overseas internationally or in Europe. If you have a fast food store in Europe, you're going to have to look at all of the supplies that go into your paper cup, your your produce, your your store. What is the carbon footprint that's created? And be accountable for that and, and disclose it. And so that requirement now creates an opportunity for corporates to also channel the investments for renewable energy in the U.S. as well. Have you seen structural inefficiencies that at the corporate level that right now are preventing your clients from adopting solar? So one of the things that is an opportunity in the U.S., which I believe can all of us here could really maybe focus and, and address, is really what are the projects that are available that are investable. And what I'm finding is that because there are so many players and there's this, this market is growing so fast and so many new players, it is very hard to discern and be able to really kind of get down to the projects that are at the utility scale level whereby investors could invest. So we at Deutsche Bank DWS really facilitate those investments in by vetting the projects looking at the viability, looking at 
the power production, the return on investment, the financial models associated with each of the projects. But in, in U.S., because it's a huge number of projects, many of them are fairly small. It's really the utility scales that make a difference. For example, one of my funds, which is in association with a large U.S. corporate for greening their supply chain, we've invested close to almost a gigawatt of investment in renewable energy. And to be able to do that in a very short period of time, we would have to have access to the list of utility-scale projects that are ongoing and the stage at which they are in their development so that there's full transparency on where they are, what is the financial requirements, who are the partners, who are the developers, who are the EPC providers, who are the lenders, and so on. So that information being available so that investors or asset managers like ourselves can actually have access to this and facilitate the investment. The corporates have a huge interest to do so, but the access to that information is very difficult to get. I'm seeing at least a few eyebrows raised because there are folks in this audience who are trying to build those kinds of platforms. I think it's really interesting uh, that there is an asymmetry in the marketplace where corporates want to move quickly, but they don't know where to channel their money. Are there analogs in other segments that the renewable energy industry should be looking at trying to adopt models like the power purchase agreement that would help facilitate and accelerate not only the visibility, but the deployability of the capital into these projects? So I think that in other countries where development has been moving at a faster pace, we can see, of course, some of this in China as well as in Europe. The government has taken a more proactive position to actually help the developers and help the financial bankers and and leasing companies to really provide a more uniform way of reporting as well as registering what is actually available. And that common registration or that common bulletin, if you want to call it, where the government is facilitating and ensuring that what's actually been recorded, registered, and reported is actually valid and can be verified and is accurate uh, is very, very critical and important. And I think that when it comes to adopting in the U.S., it's important to have a way for allowing for access to information that is accurate, that is valid and verifiable. And so that level of consistency and availability as well as transparency is critical for investors to really be able to select and also be able to review geographically where they want to invest and what kind of projects they want to invest and what is the financial return as well as the energy, green energy output that will be produced. As you think about your time looking through not just the lens of DWS, but but as an entrepreneur looking for products to serve your clients. When you look at the market today, is there anything that you could, like, especially with the, with the tailwind, as it were, of the IRA, that you wish existed, that the folks in this room should be creating that would help your customers deploy their, their, their hard-earned capital faster or better? Is there anything that you would sort of call out to the community to say, why aren't we developing this or get ready for this, it's coming? Yeah, so you know, I do have a favorite topic which I shared with you, which is the, the ability to, for developers to be able to qualify their projects and tokenize it so that it can be accessible to financial investors 
at the level of, 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 of a token so that people can invest on a token basis so that it can almost commoditize the accessibility of these projects to investors, to smaller investors. You don't have to be a major corporate or you don't have to be a major pension fund to be investing in renewable energy and have that visibility on the return of the investment as well as the earned green energy certificates. So I've been an advocate of blockchain and access to being able to, for developers to get qualified and get their projects tokenized so that these tokens can be issued for investment. And then the earned income as well as the earned green credits can go into the wallets of the owners of those tokens in the blockchain so that that can then be more widely made available to investors as well as more transparent in terms of the earned energy as well as the earned income. Fascinating. I'm pretty sure that the audience didn't expect to hear someone from DWS Asset Management say that they're looking at the blockchain and how we can tokenize these assets. I am certain that three to four years ago, it would have been a, a pipe dream for us to have considered that. But it shows exactly how far, not just that kind of technology, but the level of financial um, maturation we've seen in the markets to, to say, okay, how can we actually use this technology that's been proven out in a myriad of other ways to put these assets into a uniform uh, methodology, right? right. Uh, and one of the most important things that these corporates are looking for is to ensure that there's no double counting on the mm. green certificates. And the only way that you can do it is to securitize it in a blockchain so that it's immutable and it has a trace of all changes or ownership that has happened. So you are an owner and you've actually claimed it to neutralize or decarbonize your carbon footprint. There is evidence that you know where and when it was produced and how it was produced. And at the same time, you can retire it so it's not reused by somebody else. Dr. Priscilla Liu serves as head of sustainable investments for DWS Asset Management. It is such a joy to get some time with you. I hope that I get to spend a longer conversation with you at some other point, but today we're gonna have to keep moving. Thank you. Next, I'm going to invite Zad Ashai, the CEO of Nexamp to the stage. Zad is the chairman and CEO, has been for the last decade, where he's provided leadership and vision to drive the company's continued growth and innovation. Before joining the management team, Zad oversaw Nexamp as general partner at venture firm Point Judith Capital. He previously worked at Good Energies, where he was elected a Coppin Fellow and focused on investments in next generation energy efficiency technologies, one of those investments being Nexamp. Zad currently serves on the board as well for notable organizations like SIA, the NECEC, and Vote Solar. If you're Vote Solar fans out here, yeah? I won't ask for SIA fans, but we're all Vote Solar fans. Thank you for uh, being here, Zad. It's good to see you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, when you partner with our partner, Trina Solar US, you get more than best-in-class Vertex modules. You also gain a bankable partner for optimized compatibility and improved system value. With the Trina Pro Utility Scale Solution, or C&I Solutions, Trina Solar is the only PV module manufacturer in the United States that offers one-stop system integration solutions, including Trina Tracker, inverters, and full BOS support to lower your levelized cost of electricity. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. 
Its built-in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, can I borrow your attention for just one minute? How many of you in the residential solar install game right now would really say that your workflow is built to win? You know, in the 2010s, solar was all about sales. I think that the winners of the 2020s is really going to be contractors that focus on operational efficiency. See, margins are getting squeezed and there's a ton of competition out there, but everyone has an opportunity to improve. Would you like to know the score? of the value of your survey and design process? Would you like to hear about the evolution of the installer workflow? Well, then I would encourage you to join myself and my friend Jason Steinberg from Scanifly next Wednesday, the 31st of May at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Or maybe it's this Wednesday, or maybe you already missed it and you need to go see the replay at any point. You are going to benefit from the insights that we're going to reveal the benefits of a tech-driven solar ops program, the transition from manual to digital surveys. It's all there. I hope that you will check in, tune in, register, and uh, throw us some hard questions. We always love it in our live broadcasts. Join us May 31st, 2 p.m. with Scanifly. See you there. Zed, I want to start off with the topic that everyone is talking about. I imagine I haven't sat in on the sessions this morning, but we're in conference circuits uh, every week now, and it's, uh, you know, the IRA is sort of tip of tongue. And everyone sort of looks at the IRA as a tailwind, right? This sort of boon of opportunity and capital, despite some of the recent uh, last couple of days uh, emergence in, in policies. But I'd like to get a pulse check on what you might see as the headwinds rather than the tailwinds that we need to confront. So maybe touch on a few of the positive points that you see with the IRA, but I'd like to really hear from your perspective as one of the largest developers, what are the headwinds that the IRA creates for us? Uh, first of all, Nico, uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. And uh, you know, thank you everyone for attending this important conference. So I think we'll probably start with positives. It's, like, you know, it's uh, never great to start discussion with the negatives. The IRA legislation really transforms what we all are doing. And uh, like Nico, I've been in the industry for quite a while. And the challenge we've always had in this industry has been the episodic nature of policy and financing. Uh, ITC, PTCs always had a cliff dates. And the reality is this legislation is transformational because it creates a long runway. But it's also transformational because it's really looking at what does the future of energy look like and what does the future of utilities look like? And that's very important because one thing I, I would really surmise is the future of energy is not going to look like what we've had over the last 50 years. It's not going to be utility scale, wind and solar projects simply replacing fossil fuel projects. So, you know, I think one thing I, I would sort of like push back from the previous speaker is utility scale is not the only thing that matters. I think the future of our grid is going to be distributed, democratized, decarbonized. These are very new themes that are there. And the legislation really focuses on that. It recognizes that we can't just replace large-scale fossil fuel plants just with large-scale renewables. And there's nothing wrong with large-scale renewables. They will continue to play a vital role, but it's going to be a much more diverse future. 
And this legislation really takes points at that. It focuses on insourcing domestic manufacturing, making sure that we create jobs here across the United States. It focuses on energy justice. So all the ills that we've had with the previous energy ecosystem are corrected to some degree. They'll never be fully accounted for, but there is those mechanics. And then there's also just really this focus on making sure we have more DG projects as well by creating interconnection eligibility. So some really exciting things. But when I was talking to Nico, I said, with all this good news, the challenge is what speed bumps are we gonna come into? And the future is not where everyone wins. And that's the reality. There are gonna be changes for what we see. So a few things I've noted. One is the challenges around the PR. How do we as an industry manage the public relations aspect of this bill and our rollout? I've already seen sort of PR about, is this a bailout for China? Is solar and storage creating higher energy prices? So this is something that we're gonna have to really think hard about. And number two, another challenge that we're seeing is transmission and distribution queues. I think if we don't solve those issues, this rollout will be sloppy, long, and difficult. So happy to talk in a little bit more on some of those challenges, but those are a few of the challenges I see going forward. Yeah, I think that the thing that I continually see in uh, communication with my friends who are running comms organizations is the battle that seems to be right in our face under our nose that nobody wants to address. And that you mentioned is the comms battle, the war that is being waged against renewables right now because of what we all presume is the inevitability that we win is the incumbent energy uh, regime, as it were. How are you seeing that PR battle play out right now? And and what should we be doing differently on that front? Are we winning in any ways, the battles? Are we losing the war right now? Because I feel like that's a, that is a front that nobody wants to talk about. A couple things I'll note on if we're winning the war, it's just too early to tell. The reality is, is when the IRA legislation was passed, we now are going to see state by state implementation of various clean energy programs. So a couple things, I, I would look at California and M3.0. Mm-hmm. I don't think our industry won. Uh, the reality is it was a difficult, messy process. It was also a strange thing for me to see traditional allies of clean energy line up against net metering, conservation groups, low-income advocates, groups that should be in our tent decided to leave our tent. So there's two ways you can look at it. One is you can blame them, say they got it wrong, or you can look inside our industry and said, where did we get it wrong? Why have they left our tent? And I think that's what we need to focus more than taking sort of the pot shots there. Uh, so from a state-by-state basis, I think there's a few things I, I would note as someone that believes in this transition, less as the CEO of Nexamp is, we got to get better talking points about how we're delivering value. So when I go to some of these congressional sessions, we have other well-meaning developers who talk about, hey, we've created jobs, we've created tax revenues, our talking points have to evolve much better than that. How is this really creating long-term value, resiliency, and sort of national security, and making sure we have those talking points down? But number two is, as an industry, we gotta start hitting back. Mm -hmm. Uh, So some of the states in uh, the Northeast, where I'm from, I'm based in Boston, we're seeing dialogue in blue states where our, our grid is heavily relying on natural gas. As you can imagine, over the last two years, people are hurting from high electricity costs. 
And what does the other side do? Solar and storage are too expensive. We get it, it's really good, but it's too much too fast. And when I talk to my peers and the developers, it's like, we should call it out. And they're like, ugh, you know, I have projects in the queue. I don't want to upset the utility when they're saying that. Well, if we're not going to punch back, and even if they're repeating really lies, once you say a lie several times, it becomes truth in our cycle. So that's, that's the thing is look, we got to start thinking beyond that. And for developers who are here, which I'm sure there's a large amount, we got to start emphasizing the long-term nature. Too often in our camp, I see developers just worried about, can I build it and get my developer fee? And nothing wrong with that. You guys have to make returns. But the reality is, how do we make sure that this is viewed as a long-term thing? So press release is saying that, hey, we flipped projects to XYZ financial advisor does not build the groundswell of support for solar. And that's why I think constructs like Community Solar, where we're driving value to each customer, is a much, it's, it's a phenomenal paradigm to build that support. So I think all of us throughout this value chain really have to start thinking hard about how to do that well. The reality, as I look at, uh, you, know, you just mentioned community solar, uh, I've talked about it at length on the podcast. We did a whole series on it that featured folks from various aspects of the industry. It's been referred to as the fourth vertical. Uh, it's no surprise to anyone here, if they're doing business in the Midwest, in, in particular, the Midwest, Illinois, Minnesota, that community solar is on the rise. Nexamp, being based in Boston, obviously New York is um, is a huge market. But I have a question around sort of the development of the organization. You've been the leader of the organization for a decade. You are arguably the leader of developer-owned community solar with more than 60,000 customers, more than 1.2 gigawatts in assets. I'd like to understand why you see community solar as a key focus area for Nexamp and what opportunities does that segment provide that other mar market segments don't? So I joined a little bit less than 10 years, so you're, you're trying to date me, make me <laughs> seem a little bit older, but that's okay. But yeah, I've been here at nine years, all jokes aside. And you know, for us, Community Solar, is a, it's a really powerful vehicle. And when I joined Nexamp, there were a few things. We really wanted to create a business model that was customer-centric. And we wanted to create a business model where energy subscribers love the product that they had, they appreciated that there's savings attached with it. When I joined, I, I, my viewpoint was, it's hard to tell someone to go green and a premium product. There are people who are gonna do it, they're early adopters, but it's not the vast majority of the market. So, so how do you get to mass adoption? And then secondarily, our customers are project investors, tax equity, debt. How do you make it seamless for them? So when we looked at those constructs, we determined a few things. One is creating a vertically integrated platform. And what do we mean by that? We mean we do development, we do deployment, so high-level procurement, engineering services, asset management ownership, and then the customer uh, really subs subscription part. And, and what we love about the product is it creates a passion for the product, but it also helps our development. Because as you can imagine, I'm sure there are a lot of developers in this room you go to town meetings, you go to permitting, there's a lot of nimbyism. I, I love green energy, but I, I really am worried about solar glare. I'm worried about what it does to the value of my homes. All, all difficult discussions, but when you have community solar and say, well, we're gonna help the community, not only with jobs in the short term, but energy savings, it's a very powerful vehicle. And then secondarily, 
It's also driven corporate interest in renewables as well. Uh, I would argue corporates are looking for things beyond utility scale. So a few customers of ours are Walmart, T-Mobile, FedEx, among other large companies, who are looking to really anchor in these communities, save energy, and drive savings. Um, and then lastly, what, what we love about community solar is working with other ecosystems, other startups, other innovators who are here and entrepreneurs, is how does community solar become the first step to your decarbonization journey? And that's really important. And that's something we all have to do together, right? There is room for all of us in this, but we have to create solutions that allow you to go beyond community solar to how do you electrify transportation, heating? How do you do it in a seamless, easy way? And for me, community solar is really one of the best ways to drive that adoption. Last year, you made an announcement, uh, more than 600 million raised to expand from what had traditionally been a, a Northeast regional developer to become more of a nationwide footprint. So I want to talk a bit about deploying talent and uh, treasure or capital. In the opening of your downtown Boston office, you spoke eloquently about how community solar can be a tool for empowerment of marginalized populations. Can you share your personal vision around solar and social equity, and in particular, how community solar ties into that? So when I joined Nexamp, um, it was in 2013, just to give you context. And I think this is not a story about Nexamp because I think the last thing we want to hear during lunch is kind of like the little elevator pitches about our companies. It's more the transition of this industry and how far we've come in the last 10 years. So when I joined, uh, we're 20 people, primarily in Massachusetts. Some of you may have been active in the SREC markets. There were a few other states like New Jersey, Colorado, but a handful that I could count on one hand. We're 20 folks trying to develop that model. Now, now you look at, um, Nico, as you mentioned, fast forward to this year where we have 460 team members focused on this whole value chain and we have a footprint uh, as far west as Hawaii and as far east as Maine. So it just shows how much the industry has gone, has really grown, but how many opportunities are still there. A few things, though, you know, on building an organization of things I've learned, and um, there's tons of mistakes, which if we have time, we can go into that as well, because mm -hmm. I probably have made more mistakes than done more good in, um, in my tenure. One is you sort of have to create a great mission. You know, we've been fortunate to bring in talent to our company because they're passionate about their mission. They're passionate about serving customers and doing the right thing. Number two, they have to be part of the mission. And what we mean by that in XAMP is every team member, no matter what level, what position has equity in our organization. So they own all part of the company. And, and I think that's a really important point because it gets into social equity. If you look at the reality of our income disparities in the United States, People who have capital have done really well in this country. People who don't have capital, whether it's stocks, investments, real estate, haven't done so well. I mean, just here in Boston, my hometown, the net worth of black residents was abysmally low. I think it was literally $8, which is shameful. So the question is, how do you sort of break that model? You have to live those values. And then from a social equity standpoint, one thing when we started doing community solar, was about four and a half years ago, we decided we would do no credit checks, period. And I would tell you, I got the door shut on me so many times with large banks saying, you can't do that. We need a high FICO score. That's not equitable, right? Essentially, we're just repeating what the mortgage industry did by redlining poor and 
primarily people of color out of sort of this growth opportunity. It took work, so we started, candidly as entrepreneurs, we started scrappy with some small banks and then worked our way up and, and doing that. And we were able to provide data that showed that FICO scores were not appropriate. The other things in social equity is, you know, we work with our marketing team to make sure that we're inclusive, to make sure that we're not just cherry picking customers, even though we have no FICO scores. And then lastly, one thing I'm really proud that the team has done, and I'm happy to share information to any company because for me, it's like, how do we democratize how we do this, is we've created a program called Solar Sunrise. And for these hires, so this year we're trying to hire about 100 new team members based on what we're doing across the country. But I challenged a team and said, well, let's start looking at non-traditional candidates, candidates that would never go through the queue because they don't have the right education, you have the right skills or training, and how do we bring them in? And then how do we provide the support to make sure they do well? So it's essentially a rotational program for folks who are interested in solar, but for whatever reasons have had challenges at various points in their life, or they're just in communities that candidly recruiters and you know companies have not gone after. And we're doing that and I, we're really excited about it. We're in the second cohort and the first cohort was really successful. And um, again, this is something happy to share uh, with our various sort of like peers across the industry. I think what's, you know, what's interesting as pertains to this macro conversation is what is the business model of the utility, of the utility evolving into, you know, when you sign up for a utility uh, with, ex with some exceptions, there isn't this credit check requirement for, that prevents you from getting electricity to your apartment or to your home. So why would we asset class uh, also, why would we put that barrier in place? I think that it shows leadership for NextAmp to, to take that stand. I want to take uh, a moment and just sort of pull back, as I had promised in the beginning, and focus on or think about what the 21st century utility looks like. And I'd love to hear from your perspective. What do you think are the key characteristics that really form what I might call the DNA of the utility of the 21st century? Clearly, you're building a business that will, in some ways, take on, uh, and, and in many ways, take on the kind of work that the, what we currently refer to as utilities are providing for consumers. Can you talk about the graying line between the IPP and what we currently call a utility and what it might look like in 2030 and beyond? So, Nico, you're trying to get me in trouble with utilities <laughs> that may be in this crowd or may not be. So... Um, I think it's an important dialogue that all of us have to have among our tent, right? Folks who are looking to accelerate the energy transition and utilities. My experience uh, when I started at NextAmp was, it, it was basically warfare between the utilities and clean energy owners, operators. We were just at log loggerheads over interconnection, over policy, over whether energy transition should even happen. And this was in 2013. My counsel for us as an industry is we have to reshape that dialogue. Utilities are going to be partners. I know it's probably not a popular thing to say. And trust me, I grit my teeth with certain utilities when I say that. But the reality, and I imagine most of us are here, is we're trying to create a better future 
for the next generation. I, I have three young kids that I'm sure every, most of us have family and friends that we're trying to build a legacy for. If we're at war with utilities, we will not realize that clean energy future. So the question now to your point is, what does this utility and sort of IPP relationship look like? In my mind, it's gonna vary state by state based on transmission zones, but utilities do a great job of transmission and distribution. When I say great job, they should be the stakeholder and great job meaning that they should own that. And now the question is, how do utilities work with new business models? So for me personally, I think there's gonna be a point when owner operators can scale enough renew renewable energy assets, use demand response, use their customers to bypass the distribution point. And for me, that's the holy grail because a lot of us in distributed energy, the distribution level is really the choke point. So we have to go beyond that. But we also have to make sure that utilities don't view it as a threat. Uh, so a few things I, I've learned um, from an Exam business model. I have started spending more and more of my personal time at the C-suite with utilities, not saying this is where you messed up, this is where you messed up with interconnection. And trust me, there, there's a long list of that. I'm sure all of you have experienced that. But more starting, where can we help? Where can we show you that DG can drive value? So a few things. One is... We just started a pilot program with National Grid doing self-performance. So for folks who are in DG, I'm sure you've experienced interconnection process, expensive, slow, mistake-ridden. Why don't we do it? If we can adhere to the safety and union and work standards, let the private sector open that up and drive costs down. And what we found in that pilot is we cut down the time by 50% and driven costs down by 40%. I'm sure many of you would achieve very similar results if done well. Second, looking at non-wires alternative projects, helping them with congestion, because the challenge is utilities as organizations tend to be very old and tend to be very uh, conservative. So how do we show them new technologies? So my challenge would be for the CIAs, the CCSAs, other industry associations, we should be hosting utility leaders of the future, the young team members who are in their 20s and 30s, and really making sure that they're fluent in technology, smart inverters, storage, demand response, as our previous speaker said, blockchain technology. So when they're leaders, there's no roadblocks to adopting these technologies. The narrative, as we talked about, is often driven by regulatory and policy issues. Um, it is state by state, often county by county in some ways. You've said publicly you believe that the key barrier to new markets opening up is regulatory. And a lot of what we're seeing in the Midwest, as expected, is adoption of policies, some good, some not, from other markets. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we've learned. We talked about NIM 3.0. We talked a little bit about Maine. You know, what's true is we can have success stories become the narrative that drive good policy adoption, or we can have horror stories become the narrative that drives bad policy adoption. One supports our, uh, our growth, the other stymies our growth. I'm curious to hear from the battlegrounds that you're seeing, are there any specific examples that you can share of uh, sort of how utilities are learning from what's happening in the marketplace and where we have an obligation as a community to help them see the good news and honestly, it's evolving because it's hard for a couple things. One is say, utilities are a diverse lot. There are utilities who fully embrace energy transition. There's a group that 
assume it's going to happen, but want to kick the can down the road because of investors. And then I think there's a lot that are in full denial. Uh, so it's hard to sort of really generalize wh where that is. So a, a few things that I, I've noted, I, th I think New York has been a tremendous community solar uh, state, but it's not perfect. And one thing I, I would say there is New York used their political capital to make sure that utilities rode the boat the same direction as most of the clean energy owner operators. Now, the challenge is what we've seen in New York, and I hope other states learn from it, is the customer experience has been suboptimal. I would say horrific in many instances. Bill credit's incorrect. Two bills uh, just misaligning. Folks not understanding community solar. So, you know, I, I think, Nico, with every state, we kind of improve, and then you learn where the mistakes were made. You know, for me personally on the consumer side, I don't think utilities should own your consumer data, like your tech data. I think your energy data should be yours and we should be pushing utilities to open it up. I don't think that's a controversial subject between Republicans and Democrats, but how do we start putting that in policy? Utilities will scream about it. They'll say security, et cetera. There's ways to do it. Those are kind of some of the learnings is that kind of that, really that, I call it that customer support once projects are live is an area that utilities, owner-operators are trying to figure out. And one thing I would caution with owner-operators, I, I say this with all due respect, owner-operators that are saying, oh, let the utilities do the customer billing, that is a horrible bargain. If you think utilities are gonna manage customers well and drive savings, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. So that is one thing I would challenge you. While it may be easier to develop a project for the long-term uh, success of our industry, we have to decouple that because utilities are not designed to drive customer transition. I want to close with a couple of questions that will help distill uh, what you have been learning, what your team has been experiencing into actionable steps for those who are in the audience who are learning from what's happening in the Northeast to apply to the Midwest and other markets and who themselves at building maybe an app or a marketplace or a development company who are looking to Nexamp as sort of a postcard from the future of what to think about and how to, how to look at the marketplace. I kind of think about two things. We'll return back first to this call to arms, as I like to say, which is we could very well lose the PR battle if we are not paying attention to what's happening at a national level. So as a board member of SIA, you get an opportunity to have visibility of what's happening uh, at, the, at the structural level with the narrative across the United States. Where do you see most developers missing an opportunity to contribute? What is an action step that each person here can take to actually do something within their own organization that helps push our narrative forward and, and in, in some way helps to counter the, uh, the alternative narrative that renewables is in some way damaging to our, our grid or our society? I think on our political engagement, I, I would assume that we're going to be outgunned by our detractors for quite a certain amount of time. So the question is, as personally as me as an entrepreneur is when you have competitors that are, have big balance sheets, you have to behave differently. You can't do the same thing. So while our trade groups have been working tirelessly, like CIA and CCSA, I think we got to think like, how do we start looking at building advocates in the more local elections? So for example, um, I believe it's 19 or 20 states have elections for PUC or PSC commissioners. Those races don't cost much. So uh, I'll give you an example in Georgia, uh, where Georgia flipped uh, a few years ago to two Democratic senators, mm -hmm. we lost 
the PSC election. No one is focused on it because all our party infrastructure, rightfully so, I'll put my partisan comment and I apologize, was focused on those races, but we dropped the ball on the PSC and PUC election. And again, for me, and I'll say this, I grew up as a Rockefeller Republican. I grew up in Maryland, so, um, and then I transitioned because there is no such thing as moderate Republicans anymore. But the question is, how do you sort of build a bench of people in both parties who advocate for clean energy? We're, I believe we're the only modern Western democracy, whatever sort of words we want to describe ourselves, that have one party that still basically does not believe in climate change. That's a problem. We're, we're not going to advance into 50 states if we have Republicans and Democrats even debate the merits of clean energy. So we have to focus on, in my opinion, some of these smaller races, but also really develop a bench that's diverse in political thought. We can start debating, like I would love to debate on both sides, like is a regulatory, are we doing market-based solutions? There are some good ideas from both sides of the aisle of how to drive down costs and adoption. So we gotta evolve to that. I don't want us to, like for us, we're working on a cause where if we fail, the consequences are catastrophic. So we can't sort of resort to this political mudslinging, which unfortunately has been part of our society. We can debate what are the causes, but we're in a really difficult social and political time. And if we fall into those same echo chambers, we're screwed because as a country, we have to lead the clean energy transition. So that's really one area I'd see. And then second is messaging. How do we talk about what we do with more sophisticated, more nuanced, more broader talking points that appeal to a more uh, vast electorate. And the things I'm excited about is, look, we have manufacturing tax credits. We should be focusing in those red districts. And I know many of the manufacturers are, the administration is thinking about that, but let's talk about that the green energy revolution is not a democratic cause. Like the IRA bill is not just for one party or one uh, people of a political persuasion. How do we do that? And then lastly, um, something I've talked about in our Vote Solar meetings, we're in a really difficult cultural moment where if I went to West Virginia and I said, let's talk about energy justice, let's talk about racial and structural inequities, the conversation's over. Now, we can debate why, but if the conversation's over, we need to change some of the language we use. It's not saying abandon the principles, but how do you meet that person? And how do you do that? And um, I had one interesting anecdote. I was in Arizona uh, with some of my management team members and I was at a swimming pool and uh, this guy clearly looked like he wanted to talk to me. And he's like, what do you do? And he's like, I was like, solar. He's like, oh, that fake energy stuff. I'm like, okay. And then he was kind of like grumbling when he's cleaning the pool and I was like, do you want to talk? And um, he said, sure. And first he thought elections were fake. And he's like, you're gonna call me an idiot for believing that. I said, absolutely not. I said, my parents raised me in a different way. Ended up talking for an hour and 20 minutes where he was like super excited. He used to be an electrician, but didn't have work. And he grew, and I was like, hey, can I ask you, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the Midwest? And yeah, I grew up in a coal mining town. So he saw what it did to his family, the energy transition. And we gotta get better, right? You know, we gotta get off our coastal elites, you know, the elites here in Chicago. We have a way of talking down to folks. And I know sometimes that's uncomfortable to face, but we got to start looking at ourselves and thinking, how do we reset?
That was really, really well said. And I want to just come back to something that you said earlier that I would agree is not something that you hear folks say all, all every day. I'll point to Louisiana and in, in the district for New Orleans. Uh, the PUC just elected a young black man and he is really shaking shit up, like actually getting things done. And it is because in that district, they saw an opportunity and he personally saw an opportunity that being a young person with energy who believed in climate change, he could take massive action. And he has really done, uh, done amazing work down in Louisiana. We're seeing now that market open up in the ways that we could only have hoped it would. Nebraska is a place where we're seeing like public power uh, actually embrace renewables because there are folks who are bringing the right people into, into these commissioner chairs. That's something that as a call to arms for us as a community, we really ought to take seriously that we might not be able to contribute specifically to getting a senator elected, but, but your local chamber and your local uh, commissioners are, that is the, the proving ground of what the regulatory environment looks like for each, for each state. Yeah, let me just jump Go in ahead. with one thing really quick. <laughs> A really interesting fact is the RNC convention is in Milwaukee next mm-hmm. year. DNC's in Chicago. We have a prime opportunity in this state to show both Democrats and Republicans what the energy transition can do. Yeah, so yeah. that's an opportunity. I hope our trade associations, our owner operators, entrepreneurs take advantage of, of both, not just one, yeah. but both. And I think that's going to be just given the geographic proximity to the state. It's it. going to be a prime opportunity. All right, so I'll finish with uh, a question that I hope everyone here can appreciate because as I've positioned here, I believe that Nexamp and companies like Nexamp uh, are, you know, Brookfield and Vinergy, like the, the category of folks that are building and owning assets are becoming the 21st century utility, which means several of you in this audience uh, and others listening through the Suncast podcast are going to want to know, well, how do I build projects that companies like Nexamp are looking for? So if we look out five plus years. What do you think the community solar market actually looks like? Characterize for me the projects that you believe you'll be looking for in what states or markets you think that there will be headway that you'll be uh, looking for partners in those markets. So uh, how do you think about the next four to five years and really tee up a healthy pipeline for that 21st century utility like yourself to integrate these assets? The reality is if we look at the community solar market, uh, there are a few states that have done really well. Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, Maine, and among some others. Uh, Some of the markets that we're super excited about, California, Michigan, potentially Ohio, Pennsylvania, among others. But at a higher level, just then rather going state by state, for us, we're, we're looking at states where there is a programmatic commitment to continue to build. When, when we enter a market, we have to do several things. Is one, we have to create development infrastructure, as you mentioned. One for, we do greenfield development, but then we also, um, as some of you may know, we work with quite a few sub-developers. Uh, so that infrastructure, to put it in there, we have to know there's a longer-term path to that. And then secondarily, we have to know there's a path to the customers, right? So that they're just not just controlled by the utilities, there's a certain amount of decoupling, or we suspect there will be a de- decoupling because we're putting a lot of that consumer infrastructure. When, when we look at projects, I mean, I think a few themes sort of uh, are really hit. One is making sure that we're working with developers that understand the state of the grid, understand what's possible, but understand some of the realities and nuances of getting through 
an interconnection process. Secondarily, on land control, making sure it's done in a way where, A, the sites are, you know, there's certain sites that are great for ground-mounted solar, there's certain sites such as Kendley or not, but making sure that they have really done a lot of good legwork in the communities. I think between in our portfolio, there, there are a lot of case studies of what to do well in communities. I think it's being honest about what the benefits are, not puffing up numbers, making sure we're listening uh, in the things and, and working through that and, and really being listeners, not someone who's bulldozing and being able to pivot through the development process. Uh, development's a hard, lonely business. It's something where you have to have a short memory. You have to be entrepreneurial. But if you're committed to the craft and committed to improving, it's something that really can be a phenomenal and exciting career. All right. Well, that is a wrap on today's rebroadcast from our live interviews of Priscilla Liu and Zadish Shai in Chicago a few weeks ago at the Midwest Solar Expo. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you as well to the team at the Midwest Solar Expo and the teams at DWS and Nexam for helping connect us with these industry leaders and their thought leadership. Hopefully you like these insights that we're gleaning from the front lines, literally at the regional trade shows, bringing them to you each and every week. Of course, we'll be right back here this Thursday and drum roll, we will finally hit episode 600. So I'm going to be interviewed by my friend, Sean Tanabi from Peak Power. And uh, I hope that you won't miss out because episode 600 is a, a, an opportunity to reflect on 600 interviews and nearly eight years of content creation here on Suncast. I hope that you enjoy this kind of content. And now with nearly 600 episodes under our belt, you can find the resources, highlights and discussions and along with social media links and guest recommendations, book recommendations and more by going to the show notes on our website at mysuncast.com. Hope that you've checked that out. I also would encourage you, if you haven't already, to check out our companion website, which is the definitive directory on content for the clean energy revolution, uh, Resource Labs, www.resourcelabs.co. That is, of course, where our podcast network is hosted and where our most recent podcast launch, Climate Avengers, can be found. I hope that you will check it out. If you want to partner with us, you can find all the resources for that on the sponsor page at mysuncast.com. In the meantime, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.